Okay, the final case we're going to discuss in this course, uh, and relatively briefly, I suspect, although it is a fascinating case, and I have um, included this case and this project, the Jumbo Glacier Resort, as um, one of the two projects that I usually discuss in my seminar on major project development, because this Jumbo Glacier Resort, there's a film about it called Jumbo Wild, but it's an amazing story of how off the rails major project regulation can go in Canada and just how long a project can be in limbo. This project was in development, in limbo, for over 20 years and was finally shelved and once and for all killed just this uh, last year despite the fact that the Tunaha lost this Supreme Court of Canada case. And so it can be a example of how simply keeping projects uncertain while Aboriginal rights and title issues are being worked out, while this may be a procedural right, can in substance lead to you know, development just not going ahead in Canada. So what you have in the Tunaha case is a proposed year-round glacier ski resort. The idea is going to be there's these mountains where there's snow year-round and unlike Whistler which flips over to mountain biking in the um, in the summer this is going to be skiing in August and people are going to come from all over the world to ski this this mountain known as Jumbo. And in the early parts of the process it looked pretty good for Jumbo uh, as the First Nations were concerned, it seemed like the First Nations, the local First Nations, were generally on board. However, uh, the Tunaha First Nation, who actually split from another First Nation over opposition to this project and formed a separate group, which is another phenomenon we haven't really talked about, but positioning can lead to fissures and splits within First Nation groups. So Tunaha Nation... Well, at one point, it seemed like they were very close to agreeing to the project, later came back and said, no, we can't agree to this project in any way because constructing a ski resort on this mountain, which is a sacred mountain, will drive the grizzly bear spirit from this mountain. Our religious beliefs include that this mountain is the home of, a, of an extremely important spirit, and that spirit will be driven from the mountain. So the Tunaha went to the Supreme Court of Canada on two issues. One was whether the approval of the Jumbo Glacier Resort was a violation of the duty to consult. And the court provides a good summary of the principles to apply when looking at a duty to consult question. So it's a nice case to look at for a clear summary of the applicable principles. But the other thing that the court considered was whether there is a violation of the charter rights of the Tunaha people caused by the approval of this project in a way that would infringe their charter-protected right to freedom of religion. And the court said, yes, indeed, the Tunaha can raise a charter claim. They're not limited to Aboriginal rights. However, in making a charter claim, the court says the Tunaha are in no different position than other people in Canada. So 
Aboriginal groups can make charter claims. They are in no better or worse position to make charter claims is how the theory goes. However, this decision has been criticized significantly for taking a interpretation of religion and religious protection that does not properly account for the nature of Aboriginal spirituality and religious practices. That's a line of criticism that's been leveled against this decision. I won't get into whether I agree with that or not or the case for and against. That's a bit beyond the scope of what I want to get at in this lecture, which really is just the idea of the intersection between the charter and Aboriginal rights and title cases. So you want to have in mind that Indeed, the Charter does apply to First Nations. The Charter rights of First Nation groups and individuals can be asserted as an alternative to claiming an Aboriginal right in respect of something. But what we'll see is here, the section of the Charter relied on is 2A, which guarantees freedom of religion. And the freedom of religion section the court said, the majority of the court said, requires a two-step analysis. First, the claimant must demonstrate that he or she sincerely believes in a practice or belief that has a nexus with religion and that the impugned state conduct interferes in a manner that is not trivial or not insubstantial with his or her ability to act in accordance with that practice or belief. So two steps sincerely belief in a practice or belief that it's a nexus with religion. And then the second one, importantly, that the state conduct interferes in a manner that's not trivial with the ability to act in accordance with that practice or belief. And the court said here, Tunaha satisfies the first half of this test. There's no question the belief in the grizzly bear spirit and the belief that the impugned state conduct will drive that spirit from the mountain are sincerely held. However, the court says that freedom of religion doesn't protect the object of the belief. So Tunaha are still able to believe in the grizzly spirit and still able to practice their beliefs, even if this project goes ahead, is the theory the court says. Because Religious freedom doesn't protect the spiritual focal point of worship. So you can say that your religion involves a holy site, but if you are still free to practice your religious belief and still free to believe in your religious belief, the fact that you believe a site is holy will not necessarily mean that it infringes freedom of religion to remove that site. Now, the trouble here, perhaps, is that if you practice a belief at a holy site, then destroying that holy site will infringe with your ability to practice that belief. If there is a, a site where adherents to a religion go in order to practice their beliefs because of its sacred nature, then removal of that site will interfere with their ability to engage in that practice. You can think of Mecca, for example. And if you were to destroy Mecca, that would interfere with the practice of Islam. Similarly, if you were to destroy a church, that would interfere with the practice of religion. So it's a bit of a 
fine distinction that's drawn here. And the court says, in essence, it seems implied that the Tunaha are not saying they practice their beliefs about the grizzly bear spirit on this mountain. Rather, they believe the spirit actually exists there. And so you could still practice your beliefs and however you practice them before, you can still believe what you believe before, but you can't demand that this focal point of your worship, this mountain, remain pristine. And because the court says this is outside of what's even protected by Section 2A, the court says that we're not going to have to get into a Section 1 justification. So this is one way that I want you to think about Aboriginal rights in the Charter intersecting, where indeed Aboriginal practices could be protected under the Charter in addition to under Section 35. However, the framing of Charter rights with respect to expression, religion, equality, fundamentally were developed within a traditional Western worldview, and so therefore may not be well suited to accommodate and be responsive to Aboriginal rights and interests. Now, I am very curious to see how this issue evolves going forward. I don't think this is the last say on religious protection under Section 2A for First Nations. I think that this pendulum may have swung a bit far and it may swing back a bit and make it a bit easier for First Nations to establish and fit their religious beliefs within a charter protection framework. But this does underscore attention and attention in the nature of the charter as compared to the worldview of many First Nations. Another tension between the Charter and Aboriginal rights and title is when an internal band matter, the governance matter of a band, is subject to Charter review. And this, this has happened recently where a court has said that something that a First Nation is doing within its own internal governance, within its Indigenous law framework, is infringing the Charter-protected rights of one of its members. And this raises an interesting question of the degree to which the Charter ought to be applying to internal Aboriginal governance. It's a very interesting fraught question that is going to be resolved, I think, as we move forward. The final thing, as I mentioned with Tunaha that you get, is a very good and clear articulation of the duty to consult. And I look especially at um, paragraph 80 of the Tunaha case, which really could be a good cheat sheet almost for an exam on what is the context of the duty to consult. So while this is a fascinating case, and while you know I, I could talk about this case much longer, and we'll be happy to do so in the discussion, I won't belabor this last podcast, and I know you have a whole lot of work to do. I would like to say briefly at the end, thank you for participating in this course. Thank you for listening with such care and attention and bringing such excellent questions to our discussion. This has been a strange process for everyone. I think it's been a hard process, but I do think that we've gotten somewhere with the material where I'm sensing some real understanding from the students, and I'm, I'm most impressed and grateful for what you have done. One thing that I do usually say at the end of my classes is just I take the moment to offer a tiny bit of career advice. 
And I will take the opportunity to do that here on this podcast as well. And what I think about the law is that whatever model worked 10, 15, 20 years ago is unlikely to work as well now. The practice of law is changing and dynamic. And just because somebody succeeded one way doesn't mean that's the way that you're necessarily going to succeed in being able to accomplish your professional goals and to balance your goals and interests outside of work. And so one thing I I would recommend to everybody is go find some good mentorship and seek to learn from good lawyers and be exposed to a lot of thinking and a lot of different areas of the law. But at the same time, trust yourself, trust your instincts, know that you are extremely valuable. As a lawyer, you have a very valuable and very rare skill and you can help a lot of people and a lot of people will be willing to pay you for that skill. You have real value. Don't underestimate your value and don't underestimate your instincts. If you think that there's something about the way people are practicing the law that doesn't work or seems outdated or seems just inefficient, well, don't just assume because that's the way it's been done, that's the way it always ought to be. There is so much inertia in the law and there's so much room for people to be creative, to be dynamic, to think of new approaches and new areas and new ways you can help people, new business models that, you know, if somebody discourages you from trying something that you think is a good idea, it's probably just because that person didn't think of it. And they just think the only model to success is the way that they took. Well, you can't pattern your success in your life on the way anybody else took. But if you stay dynamic and and think about what you really want and what you want to get out of your career and what you want to get out of your life, you have such a powerful degree and a powerful skill set that you'll be able to create something that works for you. And so I really wish you the best of luck going forward. I am happy to, I would love to stay in touch. If you need any help thinking about people you might want to talk to about articles, or if you need someone to talk to about how your articles are going or, or your search for articles or your law school or anything, you know, I'm always welcome or always willing to, to chat and, um, you know, just thank you very much and, and really sincerely from the bottom of my heart, best of luck.